1: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
2: Isn't that wonderful to start off the evening tonight by singing, How Great Thou Art, and then to finish up with, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The reason his great faithfulness is the way it is is because he's great. That's the reason why. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your greatness tonight. You are great, Lord, and your faithfulness is great, and your word is great, and your presence with us is great, and your salvation is so great, a salvation. And so, Lord, we worship you tonight. And we look now into your greatness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. It's going to be a passage we'll be looking at tonight, John 18. And, you know, what we're going to do, as you can see here, is we're going to remember the Lord tonight in his death by doing what he commanded us to do to help us remember because we forget, lest I forget, lead me to Calvary. We're going to take the elements, but we need, we need to bring to our minds, bring our minds back before that to the cross. And what's important, that's what's important, is that our minds are prepared and we're brought back to the time of his suffering on the cross for our sins And so we're going to look at this particular history in the Gospel of John, which is the history of when the Lord Jesus was arrested. And what we're going to see in here are some thoughts that are going to help us to prepare our hearts, not just for taking communion tonight, but for this Christmas season as we're into right now. Thank God for, by the way, thank you everybody for all the beautiful lights out there, really setting the season there. So let's look at this together, shall we? This is John chapter 18, verse three, John chapter 18, verse three, which reads, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus saith unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go. Their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Now, what's interesting about this, and what's interesting really about all the histories in the gospel is that there are some histories, some accounts that are found in all four gospels. And then there are some histories or accounts that are only found in two or three of the gospels, and 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 we love to read them side by side you know, in these Bibles that show the the side-by-side of the different accounts. Why? Because we like to see the different angles that the reporters, the writers of the gospel saw because it's in those different angles, those different perspectives, those differences, those shades of differences that each of the gospel writers wrote about that show us the special interest of the gospel writer. For example, Luke was a physician which proves that he wasn't Jewish because who's ever seen a Jewish doctor, right? (laughs) But Luke was a physician, and so he relates more the medical things that would be interest to, to a doctor. He's the only gospel writer that wrote that the Lord Jesus said, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Matthew was an accountant, and so he tends to emphasize numerical things that he sees. For example, he's the only gospel writer that tells us that that there were 14 generations from Abraham to King David, and 14 generations from King David to the carrying away into Babylon, and 14 generations from the carrying away into Babylon into the birth of the Lord. Can't you just see the accountant in Matthew? He's got his table in front of him. He's collecting taxes. 14 coins here, 14 (laughs) coins here, 14 coins here, perfect. That's his interest. So he does this like that. Each Gospel writer gives us reports as they saw them through their own eyes. But then there are certain accounts that are only found in one Gospel. This is one of those accounts. And this is the account of the Lord's arrest and it's only found in the Gospel of John and it raises the question, as to how John selected the accounts that he included in his gospel. And so this is so important for us because we wanna know what was the criteria? What was the basis that John used to make up the gospel of John? How did John choose what to include, what to exclude for the gospel according to John? And there was so much about the Lord Jesus Christ and John John knew this and there was so much that he did not include in his gospel. As a matter of fact, twice in his gospel, John said that there were many things about the Lord Jesus Christ that he was going to include or exclude from his gospel. As a matter of fact, John was so impressed about this is that this is his closing statement to the gospel of John, that there were so many things, that he did not include in the Gospel that he wrote, and so then the last verse in the Gospel of John says in John 21, 25, 25, he says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So with that statement, we see John saying, okay, here it is, I'm finished, this is my gospel, and there was such a vast body of truth that I could have included in my gospel if I had the whole world, but I did not. So with so many histories in front of John, so many accounts, what criteria did John use for selecting this one and not that one? Well, John tells us clearly what his criteria was for selection in John 20:30. In John twenty verse thirty, John comes right out and says, "He says many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book." So that tells us what he is that he has excluded many things, but then he tells us what he included and why he included it. But these are written, John twenty verse thirty-one. Twenty verse thirty-one. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That's the criteria right there. John has told us, look, of, uh, there was vast, 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 vast things I could have written about, but or taken his histories about the Lord Jesus, but here's what I did. I took the ones that show clearly, conclusively, Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. The word Messiah, it comes from three Hebrew letters, and it means to paint or to anoint. And this was the practice whenever a new king would take the throne or a person was being commissioned to to go out on a mission, that then they would pour oil on his head. And that was the anointing. And that the Lord Jesus Christ as God was commissioned by God, he was sent by God the Father to come to earth to save man from his sins, makes him the Messiah. The Messiah refers to the Lord Jesus being sent. And this is John's goal with his gospel. He wants to show without a doubt that the Lord Jesus was the anointed one. He was the sent one. He was the Messiah. He was sent by God the Father. No other gospels report that the Lord Jesus said that he was sent by God the Father. No other gospels to report that he said, I'm sent by God the Father, but this is John's goal. And so in the Gospel of John, we have these quotes, many of them, in John 530, John 530, the Lord Jesus said, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. In John 536, 536, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. In John 5:37, "The Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. John 6:39, 6, 639, "This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which there hath given me, I should lose nothing." John 6:44, 6, 6:44, "No man can come to me except the Father which sent me, draw him." John 6.57 to 6.57, as the living Father hath sent me, I live by the Father. There's so many. Eight thirteen. 8.16, John 8.16, I'm not alone, but I am the Father which sent me. John 8.18, the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. John 8.29, he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. Eight forty-two. Jesus said unto them, "If God be your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God; neither came I of myself, but He sent me." John twelve forty-nine. For I have not spoken of myself; the Father which sent me gave a commandment. Fourteen twenty-four. He that loveth me keepeth not my he that loveth me, not keepeth not my sayings. That the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. John 17, 21, he prays that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. John 17, 25, he further prays. He says, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And then in John 20, 21, finally, John 20, 21, he says, peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. So John records all these quotes. The Father sent him, he's the Messiah. The Father sent him, he's the Messiah. The Father sent him, he's the Messiah. He wants us to know the Father has sent the Lord Jesus into the world, and this is what he has claimed. He's the Messiah so that there would be no question about it. It's only in John's Gospel that he says clearly, no other Gospel, does he say clearly, I am the Messiah. In John 4, when he sits with a woman at the well, and she says Well, the Messiah is going to do such and so. And he says clearly, I that speak unto you am he. He identifies himself so that there's no question at all. John brings this out to us. He is the Messiah. And that gives them the authority. That is his authority. That is the authority of his words, the authority of his truth, straight from God the Father. This is John's first goal. And that means that when you and I read this special book, The Gospel According to John, we should walk away from that and to say, I know he is the Christ, he is the Messiah sent from God. So from the Gospel of John, we should see clearly God wants to have a conversation with man. And so he sends the Lord Jesus Christ and the conversation with God, between God and man, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's conversation with man. Then John has a second goal, and it's to show that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Better understood by even saying he is God the Son. When the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Son of God, that's the same as calling him as God the Son. And John wants his readers to know beyond any shadow of a doubt, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, So he starts with this crystal clear statement at the beginning, the first verse in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Finished, period, clear. This shows John's second goal in the gospel to show clearly that Jesus is God. And when you and I read the gospel of John, we should be led to the clear knowledge that Jesus is God. He's God the Son. So John chooses the histories and the life of the Lord to help us see that Jesus is God. And the last goal that John has in writing his gospel, he's saying, look, I'm not just providing this information to you, I'm not a professor of Jesus. I'm not teaching you about him just so that you'll have more a more understanding about him, you'll be better educated. His last goal, he says, in writing his gospel is no shame, and he puts it right out there. He says, I've written this to persuade you. I've written this to change your mind. I want to persuade my readers, John would say, to move their souls under God's umbrella. Because have you ever been caught in a rainstorm and you don't have an umbrella, and then someone has got an umbrella and they say, come on over here, come on, come under my umbrella. That's what God is saying. He's saying there's an eternal rainstorm of being cast into hell for man for his sins, and God has set up an umbrella for man to come under it to be protected from the rainstorm. That's the umbrella of the cross. That's what we're gonna be remembering in the communion. That's the same umbrella as when the Israelites struck the top and the two sides of their door with blood. They struck it with blood. And blood, that was the blood of the Passover night. When God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, that was an umbrella for each house. And John doesn't want to educate his readers about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not John's goal in the gospel. He wants them to gain eternal life by believing into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek, when it says believe, it means believe into, believe into. You know, what does that mean, to believe into? It means to be fully committed with a whole heart obedience of life. And John is coming right out and he's stating that his goal is to persuade his readers, get under God's umbrella, and for John, the eternal tragedy would be if a person read his gospel and just became better educated as he was being cast into hell. That would be a tragedy. So John is begging for unreserved obedience to the the demands of Christ. You know, the Titanic is sinking And it's not a time to rearrange the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. The boat's sinking. It's not a time to go out and to study all about the different lifeboats. So let's see, what's this one? Okay, what's that? It's not a time for that. It's a time to get in the lifeboat because the boat's sinking, and that's John's goal. And he says that here when he makes it very clear that he wants his readers to have eternal life by believing into the name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That name is so powerful. The full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got three parts to it. When you say the Lord, you mean God. That's John's goal. He wants you to believe that he is God the Son. It is the Lord. It means God, the only God, the God Almighty, the one who created us, the one who made us. He is the God. He is is God the Son, who is one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. To call Jesus the Lord is to call him God. His name is Jesus which is a contraction of two words Jehovah and Shua Jehovah and Shua Joshua Jesus Yeshua and it means God saves God saves that's the name of the that's the meaning of the name Jesus his name is Yeshua his name is Jesus his name is Yeshua which means God saves now the word for man is ish man is ish that's the Hebrew word for man is ish His name is not Yeshua, in other words, man saves himself, that's not his name, but sadly, most people today operate with an Yeshua, in other words, I will save myself, man will save me. They believe they can save themselves by their good works, that's an Yeshua. That reminds me of a dear friend of mine this last week who has cancer, and when I told him that his time was running out, Then he responds, yes, I know, and I've thought back over my life, and I have no regrets. That's Yeshua. That's him saving himself by a life that has no regrets. So whenever we save the name Jesus or Yeshua, Jesus, we're meaning to say God saves, and it's a stand against Yeshua, in other words, it's a stand against, I'm going to save myself or a man's going to save me. So, believing into Jesus is to believe that God saves, is to fully embrace the fact that we are lost sinners. We need to be saved. We're not unsaved, we're lost. And not nice sinners, dirty, rotten sinners in desperate need of salvation. And then the last part of his name is Christ, which means Messiah, in which we've already saw that, so that to believe into To Christ is to believe that God sent him from heaven. He is God's statement to man. And when a person believes into him with 100% life commitment, with a wholehearted desire to obey his full name, Jesus Christ, God saves, he is the sent one, that person bows his knees to him as God. That person bows his knees to him as the sent one that person receives him as the only way to be saved from sin. And when anyone does that, God saves that person and gives to that person the gift of eternal life. And that's, how, that's why John shows this history in the, of the arrest of the Lord in the garden because it's in this history that we see three points that really we want to hone in on, which are the points that of the glory of Jesus as the Messiah, as God the Son, the willingness of Jesus as the Messiah, and the protection by Jesus the Messiah. So let's give this passage the title of Let These Go. Let These Go from the Lord's words in verse eight. Now the account starts off with Judas Iscariot. Judas, who previously has made a business contract. He's made an agreement with the enemies of the Lord who want to kill the Lord. He has agreed with them that if they will give him 30 pieces of silver, that he will bring them to a private place where they will not be in danger of being stopped by the multitude, where they can arrest him without any fear of people. And so Judas knows, I know the perfect place, I know the perfect time because Judas knows of the secret garden. Judas knows of the secret garden where the Lord goes at night. And so Judas knows that in the dark of night, how it's going to be perfect for his enemies to arrest the Lord. So Judas agrees with the, and he brings this group of the officers to the secret garden at night. So the officers prepare to capture him, and they make their preparation with lanterns, with torches, and with weapons as they go and and get themselves ready to go into the secret garden. And we're told in verse four, the Lord knew this. The Lord knew all things. He knew this was happening. That meant he knew all about the negotiation between Judas and his enemies for the 30 pieces of silver. That meant that he knew each person that was gonna make up this posse to come and arrest him. And he knew all about the excitement and the anticipation of them that they felt of capturing the Lord. He knew it all. And verse four tells us that knowing it all and seeing the posse ready to come to arrest him, there's two words in verse four that are so meaningful when it says Jesus went forth. He went forth. He's with his disciples. The Lord's going from his disciples to meet the posse who's come to capture him. Therefore, Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. Hallelujah. What a Savior.
1: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org.